I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about. I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people might feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, and maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that's so divided, there is power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. And we believe that can help us become better citizens, more effective advocates, and kinder neighbors. Today, good grief, bad grief. The metaphor that I've I come back to over and over again is the idea that grief is a place. Like being on the moon, looking down at Earth, you know, that's where everybody else, the non-grievers lived. And I was observing sort of Earth from my new vantage point, sort of floating separately on this like gray rock where everybody else sort of exists in full color. My name is Jacqueline Dooley. I'm a writer. Um, My daughter, Anna, uh, died from cancer when she was 15. That was in 2017. I felt untethered. Everything about my life was unfamiliar because she was gone. And it was like, now we're a family of three. And, you know, what do I say when people ask me how many children I have? And it did feel kind of like a foreign land, like a hostile, like, wilderness, something I had to learn how to survive in. Back before Anna got sick, grief seemed like an obvious thing, like an emotion, like happiness or sadness. So if someone lost someone important, like a parent or a sibling or a close friend, you know, I'd say I was sorry for their loss. That's what you said. Uh, And I thought, I think I assumed I could relate to people with that kind of loss, like as if the experience of grief was universal and that everyone went through these five neat stages and that there was a time for grieving and a time to be done with grieving. And Anna's dying wasn't something I could fathom. And so, you know, no, I'm I'm never gonna stop grieving. The thing about grief is that it's a reflection of love. You know, I love Anna and she's not here. And that love, it aches not just for the child that she was, but for the person that she'll never be and the life that she'll never have. Um, And I think that's a hard concept for people to understand. It's hard to, to accept that you can grieve forever and like, oh my God, I don't want to live like that. But I don't think that it's what you think it is. What is grief? How much is too much? What's okay to grieve and what's not? You might be thinking, well, who am I to say? Grief's personal. What's there even to discuss? But look at how we behave around grief. At least in America, our traditions are designed to keep grief quiet and private. In funeral homes, at grave sites, over cold cuts and cookies, where we awkwardly murmur, sorry for your loss. If somebody veers from that set of culturally accepted rituals, it troubles us. When my dad died seven years ago, people were scandalized that we opted not to have a funeral, just a dessert bar in the yard for people to come by and give us hugs. Some cultures hire professional mourners to sob and wail at funerals. In America, if someone is that distraught, we are more likely to avert our eyes and hope for it to end quickly. Speaking of quickly, if somebody is still intensely grieving months after the loss, they're likely to be hearing a lot of, you know, it's time to move on. We have this idea that we're meant to go through the five famous stages of grief as quickly as possible and in proportion to the loss. If a child or a parent dies, you're allowed to grieve longer than if it's a friend. We make even less space for grief if it's for a pet or a pregnancy loss. Why are we seemingly so afraid of grief? What difference might it make if our cultural norms allowed for grief to be bigger, longer, and more public? Jacqueline Dooley's grief at losing her daughter, Anna, has been all of those things. I would say it was all-consuming in the first five or six months. Um, And I didn't really work. And it didn't matter to me, like, what 
was happening outside of the space of me trying to reconnect with her. Like, and that maybe where is where the metaphor of living on the moon comes from. Like I was completely in my own world of just trying to grasp this and figure out how I can still love her when she wasn't here. The way that I stayed connected to Anna in that first year was by being as close to her, the last memory of her as possible. And that last memory was of her dying. And it was a hard memory. Like I immediately like recognized that this is not great. You know, this is traumatic and I can't keep imagining the last moments of her, you know, alive as my only memory because it was like very hard to see her that way. So what I started doing was something that um, is known in parental grief as trying to form a continuing bond, you know, and trying to like accept a new type of bond with your child that goes beyond, you know, life. And this, I think if you're very religious can be something that has to do with the church and God and heaven, but I'm not religious. She actually, this is so Anna, um, she kept a diary and then for a couple of years before she died. And then she told, she made me promise that after she died, that I was, going to read a page a day and respond to the page, like whatever she wrote in that diary, like with advice and like just my thoughts as if she were alive. So she wrote, like she had a page where she had a bad day at school. I would respond to that. And I did that. I wrote a response to every single entry in her diary. And it took me like a year, but um, it was an exercise that helped me bridge that gap of losing her because it was like every page that I read was new to me. I hadn't read them before she died. She made me promise to wait until after. Were you trying to get over the grief? No. In fact, I didn't, that wasn't even like a concept that like, you know, what, it wasn't even something that, you know, I thought was a possibility because What I was trying to do was integrate it, (laughs) you know, to honor the fact that grief was always going to be a part of my life. People around her may have been put off by the ongoing intensity of her grief, but Dooley says nobody really said that to her directly, maybe because she was being so public about it. Like I was writing about it constantly, Mm. like I was publishing essays in the Washington Post, and then I started writing on Medium. And I started quickly building a following on Medium. Now I think I have a little over 7,000 followers on Medium in the last few years. Dooley's essays have titles like, My Daughter Isn't Coming Back, and I'll Never Be Okay. She is unflinching and aching. And if you too are grieving, you might find it cathartic. If not, you might be inclined to think Dooley has prolonged grief disorder. That is a brand new designation by the American psychiatric community, and it's caused a stir among grievers and mental health professionals who say, on the one hand, yes, for some people, grief becomes so persistent and disruptive, it requires intervention. But on the other hand, where do we draw the line between what's normal and what's not? I put that to Jacqueline Dooley. What do you think about that? Do you think it's possible that at some point maybe you had a kind of grief that was a disorder? <laughs> I'm, I'm really torn about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On one hand, I think like having it elevated to something official has the potential to help people who are struggling, really struggling to function. But on the other hand, it seems like kind of an arbitrary diagnosis of something that you just can't quantify. And I think that's problematic. While Dooley says she will never stop grieving Anna. Yes, I want to get to a place where I'm at peace. And I think I'm working towards that. And that I feel her presence like in a, in joy more than in sorrow. You know, and, and that doesn't mean I'm not grieving because I, I am. I'm, I miss my daughter. But, mm. but it also doesn't mean I'm not experiencing joy. And what I'm working on now in year five is figuring out how to look forward to things again. 
What do you do today, five years on, when you want to feel close to Anna? Well, well, that's a good question. I I write a lot still. That's a, a key way that I stay, I feel like I stay connected to her. So, um, and now I still write to her occasionally. I walk in nature. She also finds solace in rituals. At first, it was folding origami paper cranes, which is something Anna loved to do. More recently, Dooley has been drawn to a ritual associated with Day of the Dead celebrations, which she learned about. From the movie Coco, I hate to admit. (laughs) Um, Since then, I've created an altar for her every year. That is a really special ritual that I I don't think I'm ever going to give up to the point where I started planting marigolds um, and so that I have fresh marigolds, which miraculously seem to survive through November in New York. Um, And I put them on her altar with candles and a picture and and really feel like uh, I just take that day to, to really think about her spirit being close to me. So that helps. You can find Jacqueline Dooley's writing about Anna and grief and other things at JacquelineDooley.medium.com. Okay, be honest for a moment. Do you think the grief she described is okay? If she were your friend, what would your conversations with her be like? The fact is that many of us, and I am right here in this boat, kind of like that our culture expects people to keep their grief contained so we don't have to confront it in others or even in ourselves. That has consequences. I like to talk uh, about the Victorian period. This is Brandy Schilace. I'm the editor-in-chief of the BMJ Medical Humanities Journal. Also author of a book about grief culture called Death's Summer Coat. She says the Victorian period is important because just 150 years ago, Queen Victoria gave mourning a new look when her husband Albert died. She wore what are called widow's weeds or mourning clothing for the rest of her life, basically flouting this concept that you have to stop mourning at some point. And, you know, she made it part of her persona. And so you had this grieving queen who was queen for a very long time. And they had a very, very well-developed mourning ritual culture. And that means what you wore, the jewelry. There was a lot of mourning jewelry made, memento mori. People did hair art from the dead and they would wear it as jewelry. If you walked into a home and the mirrors were covered or there was black garland hung or people were wearing black. And it even mattered in terms of um, not just the color black, but the material. All of this was about showing the world outside that you were grieving inside. These days, it's more like people want you to hide your grief or shrink it or you know, don't talk about it. you're going to work. You got to, quote, get back to normal. Where in the Victorian period in England and also in America, there was a much greater sense that you shared that culturally. You wore a marker of grief saying, this is something I'm going through. And what that means is, You also, even if you were not grieving, saw evidence of grief happening all around you in a a visual way. It wasn't just that grief was visible and acceptable. It was also common. There was a greater expectation that people would be grieving in the era before modern medicine, where one of the reasons people had so many children is that very few children made it to adulthood. You realize that almost every family that you would encounter would be going through some kind of grief. Now today, thanks to modern medicine, lots of death is avoidable, and far fewer of us have encountered it up close. Most people who are not in the medical profession or a soldier or an EMT, something like that, have not seen a dead body outside of an already prepared casket in a funeral home. And there's a sense in which you have been divorced from that. Uh, Someone else has turned that person into an object before you got there. But have you ever seen someone die or been there when they died or washed the body after they died or prepared them for burial after they, these are things that are, are, um, that we just don't have because other means of taking care of that have, have been arranged. And so medicine, by keeping us alive, by sanitizing and screening us from death itself, all good things have also meant we've become further and further divorced from the the realities of death. And so the further away you get from something, the scarier it is, right? Because you you haven't looked it in the face. And so if if death is alien, grief is um, scary as well? 
I think it's largely we just don't have a plot a path through it. Who are you? Who who has given? Who has plotted you a course through grief? So I don't think that grief is scary. I think it's unknown, and uh, is like a big forest, and no one knows the you know. There's no good path markers. No one knows how to get through it. We used to have rituals for that. Rituals like wearing mourning clothes or weaving a lock of your loved one's hair into a piece of jewelry or having a photograph taken of your dead loved one. As though they were living. It, like posed, eyes open. Yes. Often in a, in a scenario, almost like in a, you know, at a doll's tea kind of thing. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of reasons for this. One is that photography was very expensive and we just have no concept of that in the age of smartphones. People often didn't have enough money to say photograph their babies. Often the only photograph you would ever have was on your wedding day. So if someone had just lost a child and they didn't want to forget what they looked like and they wanted to have some keepsake from them, they would pay to have the photos done. Sometimes they were photoed as though they were sleeping or even in coffins as though they were they were deceased. But frequently, in lieu of having those charming childhood and baby photos, they would recreate scenes occasionally with their living children and they would sit at a tea table together or in matching outfits, but one of the children would actually be dead. Mm. I, I think all of us would want some kind of keepsake. It's just that we have much easier access to it today. Mm. So it only seems odd because of how they had to go about it. But most of us enjoy looking at the photos of people we love, uh, even when it's painful. And it can be part of the grieving process. It helps you realize that they they live on in your experiences of them. And as often as you revisit those experiences, the more it seems it helps them live on. There's a form of this memento mori photography going on in America today when a child is stillborn or dies shortly after birth. A photographer will be summoned discreetly to the hospital to capture a few tender shots of the baby, swaddled and serene. But unlike in Victorian times, a modern family is unlikely to display or share those photos, lest they upset the death and grief phobic among us. As grieving rituals in America have become more sanitized and prescribed over the last century, Brandy Schilace says we are missing out on the healing that can come from creating new rituals or adapting old ones to meet our needs. One of her favorite examples is the sky burial practiced by some Buddhists in Tibet. Essentially, what they're doing is they're taking the dead and they ritually dissect them and they feed the bodies to birds. And that really makes people uncomfortable frequently. But it's not done in a kind of hackneyed way. This is a very, very um, practical thing. Tibetans live where there's no trees to burn and the ground is too cold to bury people in. And it's also part of their religious understanding that you're returning things to the cycle of life and that that's a really important part of it. But that ritual of returning, they're physically returning. It's not just putting someone in the ground, but physically returning it to another living being and to help those beings live on is, uh, is something that is part of their religion. It's part of their culture. It's part of their grieving process. These practices evolve for practical reasons. You know, the Tibetan Buddhists didn't start off going, I think we want to feed our dead to the, to the birds. It was more, we live in a place that requires us to work around some obstacles and this matches well with our understanding of, of life and our connection to the earth. Here's another more modern example of a community adapting its rituals out of necessity. It's from Cambodia in the late 1970s under the Khmer Rouge. The Pol Pot regime killed many, many people. And they were killed in brutal ways and they were dumped into giant pits. And there were these mass burials. Nearly a quarter of Cambodia's entire population was murdered or died from starvation and poor medical care in the span of just four years. And that trauma was compounded by their inability to grieve properly. In traditional Cambodian culture, you would want the body to be with you. You'd chant over them and you would uh, say prayers and you would sort of commune. And that couldn't be done because you didn't know where the bodies were. And so people felt really, really like, oh, they're not going to be able to proceed through to the afterlife. There's a, a real disruption in their sense of, of culture and it stultified their grief. So they created new rituals. They created rituals where you could do the same thing over a photograph or over something they had owned. And that's an entire culture going, we need to fix 
a broken ritual problem and we're just going to create new rituals for that that fit in with our understanding of things. And so I think that's really powerful. Skilache says she thought a lot about that example during the COVID-19 pandemic. As so many millions of people were at a loss for how to mourn when even the most basic ritual of a funeral gathering was impossible. The rise of the Zoom memorial service offers an inkling that the pandemic may have created an opening to start reimagining what grief looks like. For me, the lesson is grief is has never been static. It isn't static now. And you don't have to grieve in a specific way. But we all should be encouraged to find our to find to take that journey, not to like avoid the forest of grief, but to be willing to go in and, and hack paths out for ourselves and, and to do it communally. Brandy Scalacci is editor-in-chief of the BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal, and her book is Death's Summer Coat, Our Strange, Unsettled History of Mourning. Thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you. It was wonderful to be here. We've been talking about the pressure to grieve correctly in American culture. Not too long, not too loud, not too public. But what if yours is a grief that's not supposed to exist at all? There are certain types of grief that... um, kind of get swept under the rug or people feel uncomfortable talking about. So pet death, I think, is definitely one of them. Miscarriage is one that's referenced a lot. Um, Even divorce. Disenfranchised grief is the term for mourning losses like these. And just because society doesn't acknowledge them as worthy of capital G, grief, doesn't mean the grief isn't real. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. There is a dog, cat, bird, hamster, or other kind of pet in at least half the households in America. And here's the sad truth. Nearly all of those beloved animals will die before their people do. Grief is inevitable when you have a pet. Often it's the very first experience people have with death and grief. But it's not always taken seriously. I was in preschool or kindergarten. um, I think it was like five-ish. E.B. Bartels is author of Good Grief on loving pets here and hereafter. We had a big fish tank with lots of different species of fish that were not all compatible. So at first, some fish kind of went missing, which later I figured out um, one of the bigger fish was eating the other fish. But I didn't really um, confront death head on until I saw, um, you know, an actual dead fish floating on the surface of the tank. And that was the first time I really, um, you know, saw that and had to grapple with what that meant. Bartels wrote her book partly because she thinks our collective reluctance to take pet grief more seriously is a missed opportunity. When five-year-old E.B. found her fish floating in the tank, her mother coached her through a backyard burial with some comforting words about living souls connecting together in the end one day. And that helped prepare Bartels for the bigger loss that came soon after. You know, when my grandfather died, I had some experience then feeling like, okay, I love this being and now this being is no longer around. And so I feel like, you know, obviously on a different scale, but because I had experience, you know, with burying my fish and finding ways to kind of hold on to their memories and, re, you know, visit their graves and kind of talk to them maybe when I was falling asleep and I missed them. I found I could do those same things, you know, with my my grandfather, Papa B, who passed away. Um, and I do feel like often people, you know, kind of put deaths, everyone's always trying to categorize death or rank loss. Um, And I think it's a very human thing to do to try to make yourself feel better or try to think like, oh, well, at least X, Y, and Z didn't happen. Um, But to me, all grieving is is really the same. Um, And, you know, you can feel it on different levels and different scales, but I think that um, one way to honor the grief you feel around your pets is to remind yourself that it's still grief no matter who you are grieving. So what if instead of sweeping that grief under the rug, we took advantage of its inevitability to get better at it? 
when a human dies, we may feel constrained to certain culturally acceptable rituals like funerals, obituaries, and cemetery visits. But with pets, there is no grieving playbook because it's not really supposed to be a thing. Therein lies another opportunity, says Bartels. You know, you can feel really unmoored, um, but I think it's actually a very exciting and sort of liberating thing because then you can really do whatever you want. And so many people I interviewed for this book kind of drew from their own cultural or religious experiences. Like one couple I interviewed, uh, they're Jewish. And so they sat Shiva for their Yorkie and they had, you know, family members came over and people who knew and loved the dog as well, just like you would sit Shiva for um, a human family member. And so people often do draw from customs that they already use for humans. But I also think, you know, not having this checklist can be really exciting because you can do things like taxidermy your dog if you want, or, um, you know, build a shrine in your house. And I wrote this book because I wanted to try to put as many of these different ideas in one place as possible. So if you are feeling sort of lost and not sure what to do when your pet dies, you could turn to a book like this and see, okay, great. I love this idea of, you know, um, having a big party the night before we euthanize my dog so everyone can come say goodbye. And, you know, then you can kind of go and research and do more um, to figure out what's right for you and your pet. Would you tell us about... um the death of your your childhood dog Gus um how 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 you were able to grieve for him yeah so Gus was my first dog i got him in fall of 1997 when i was 9 years old uh he was a Cairn terrier uh, which is like Toto in the wizard of oz and he was totally full of energy um spunky wild adventurous dog he loved to go fishing with my dad he loved to ride in the car he loved to bark at seagulls he would chase rabbits um he got skunked at least twice uh he was always trying to get out of the house like he figured out all these ways to you know he could bust open the screen door kind of ramming it with his shoulder and then we would just get calls from the neighbors saying are you looking for Gus like he's over here again before we even had like like notice that he was missing. Um, so he was just always getting into trouble. Um, he was he was an awesome dog. And, you know, I got him when I was nine and then he died um, when I was 18, when I had just started college. So he was part of my life for some very formative years. Yeah. Gus was the first pet that um, I had to be part of a decision to euthanize him. He had always had some different health problems and, um, so I was a first year in college at the time. It was my freshman fall. And I remember um, asking my parents to make the appointment for a couple days out so I could go talk to all my professors and ask permission to, you know, miss class and, and let them know I needed to go home because I really wanted to be there for Gus's death. Um, and people were very polite and kind and understanding. And I remember vividly, though, when I went to talk to my Russian 101 professor, um, and, you know, I started to explain to him what was going on. And before I could even finish, I realized he was crying. And then he started telling me about the dog he had, who she died, um, you know, not that long before. And she had been like a very formative part of his, his life. Um, and he just totally got it. And I just started crying in his office and he just gave me space to sit there and cry and, and show me that it was okay to be so devastated about this type of loss. And especially if you can find other people who, who get it and who are willing to listen. So, you know, I, um, I went home and I was with Gus for one final weekend and then we put him down. And um, I remember clearly too, when I came back to campus after that, my professor sort of checking in and he didn't often say explicitly like, how are you doing since your dog died? But he would, you know, just kind of, ask what was going on or what was new. And then the nicest thing he did actually was um, when his family was going on vacation, he started hiring me to dog sit because I think he knew I just, I really missed having Gus around. And it was sort of this nice fix to go hang out at his house and, and play with his dog. Um, and I just, that kindness that he showed me is something I, I try to think about all the time whenever I hear anyone is grieving a pet or a human or, or anything, you know, really that's a loss um, because it was just so generous and he shared of himself um, and his own loss. And that was a big comfort to me. So I tried to do that in this book too. That's why I put my own stories in because I wanted them to be an offering for people who are grieving. 
in what way do you think if if we were to sort of more fully embrace grief over a pet, like what what do you think that would do for us? Would, would we be better off as a society, do you think? Well, I think that so many people have pets, you know, millions and millions and millions of Americans alone have pets that I feel like pet death should be something that could really connect and unite people um, and something that people can find common ground to talk about. You know, I interviewed people of all ages, all races, all religions, all socioeconomic backgrounds for this book. And all of them were describing, you know, the extreme grief they felt over their pets dying in the same way. And I think that it can be a really wonderful point of connection for people, um, you know, from, from different life places, if people are more open about and sharing their feelings. Good Grief is the name of E.B. Bartell's book about loving pets here and hereafter. I'm Katie Riley. I'm a freelance journalist, also a mom to two little girls. And I also identify as being a griever because it's an experience I've been through um, a couple times. That somebody would introduce themselves as a griever like that caught me by surprise. She says it's a part of her identity. I've come to think of it as a skill set, too. And we called Katie Riley because of her experience with a specific kind of the disenfranchised, sweep it under the rug grief. So it was probably two to three years ago, we got pregnant again. Um, you know, the timing felt very idyllic in terms of kind of two years between the kids. And our first pregnancy had been very easy. I had had a suspicion that maybe the pregnancy wasn't going as well. And then we did some genetic testing and in that genetic testing, it came back that the baby tested positive for trisomy 13, which is a rare illness that when most babies have it, don't make it past one if they, if they survive. So we had the ultrasound and the baby had already passed. I think I was like 13 weeks. They were devastated. And I think the component of miscarriage generally being something to, like, not talk about almost made it feel bigger. You know, it's like someone taking away space of something that you feel like is important to talk about, for me, can kind of, like, exacerbate that feeling. But this is where Katie Riley's griever skill set came in. About a decade earlier, she had lost her mother to ALS. That had been really traumatic. And then only a few years later, when she was still in her 20s, her father was diagnosed with cancer and died. But she was not a skilled griever at this point in her life, and it did not go well. Um, no, definitely not. Um, anything like this before was kind of like, oh, big problems can be solved by working harder or like uh, kind of like putting your head down and getting through it, which I think helped me maybe on a law school exam or other challenges I had faced. But I think it stunted like or, or like paralyzed. I don't know the right word, the grief process. It made me question what I was feeling like, oh, everybody says I should just get up and move on and like time will just make this magically go away. And then when that didn't happen, I was like, oh, what's wrong? This isn't happening. And it wasn't until like I started to kind of, um, you know, therapy or friends or all those things like um, talk about it and really work through it that I felt like it felt more manageable to me and more um, I was able to be more compassionate with myself of being like, oh, yeah, like you really loved your parents. There was really rough caretaking years with them. And that's upsetting. And you don't need to feel bad about that. So when Katie Riley found herself pregnant and thrilled about it, she and her husband intentionally chose to tell their closest friends and family right away. They knew miscarriage was a possibility. At least 10% of all pregnancies end that way. 
But our grief-averse culture pressures couples to keep quiet in those early weeks precisely because we don't want to be confronted with the grief of a miscarriage. I recently had a friend apologize for canceling an appointment because she was having a miscarriage. While simultaneously apologizing for not having told me that she was pregnant and for now experiencing some emotional pain she needed to express but didn't feel like she should. We put women in an impossible position when it comes to miscarriage grief. And Katie Riley wanted none of it. What I felt when my parents died was like sometimes shut down. And I, over time, realized that I felt like it was healthy for me to talk about it and that I needed to push back on that. So when that happened with our miscarriage, I did have like a a brief, oh God, now I have to tell everyone. And then afterwards, like, oh yeah, like I'm going to tell everyone and then I'm going to talk about it. And, um, you know, at least this time around of like having a grief experience, I, I know what works best for me. Everybody's so different, but for me, I knew that was a big part of it. Yeah. What, what, what do you think would be the ideal societal way to think about miscarriage and the space we provide for grief? I think the ideal societal way is to provide space. Like don't presume anything about someone else, the way they feel like I think some women have a miscarriage and and they're relieved, um, which I think is totally, for me, is totally okay. And I think some women have a miscarriage and they're really upset and it might take a little longer and they may get pregnant again. They might not want to get pregnant again. Um, But I think at the end of the day, if you really want to connect with someone or build your relationship or friendship or whatever, it's about asking someone like, hey, like, how are you doing with this? Katie, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Katie Riley is a journalist, mother, and a griever. A major side effect of being such a grief-averse culture is the sheer panic many of us feel when confronted with someone who suffered a devastating loss. What is there that I can possibly say or do that will help? Many grievers say it's those people that show up either on the phone, in a text. Don't ask a question. I am thinking of you. Do not make the griever have to respond. No need to respond, just wanted to say I'm thinking of you. We've got expert advice from a grief specialist coming up next. I'm Julie Rose, this is Top of Mind. Let's start with what not to say. Do not say they're in a better place unless the person said it. Don't say I know exactly how you feel or I know how you feel. You don't, even if we've had the same losses. This is Lisa Athen. She's a grief specialist and founder of a support community on Facebook called Grief Speaks. Don't tell the person, you know, they're given what they can handle. Don't tell the person, you know what, it's for the best. Don't even say at least they're not suffering. Don't say anything, as Brene Brown says, that starts with at least or minimizing. Instead, say, I'm here for you. I'm wondering what's the hardest part for you. If you can think of anything specific I can do for you now, I just want to be here for you. And you can say, I don't know what to say. And many grievers really appreciate people being honest, saying, I have no words for you. And they'll say, of course you don't but I so appreciate that you showed up. I remember a man told me that his son died at college and his other daughter was at college. And he said, I had to tell her on the phone because it was so far away. And he said, my daughter cried and sobbed and wailed for an hour on the phone. And I said, what did you do? He said, nothing. I just stayed on the phone. I mean, she heard me sometimes cry. I didn't really say maybe more than one or two words. And after about an hour, he said she took a really deep inhale and exhale and said, Dad, I have never felt as close to you as I have in this moment. 
thank you for just being there with me. And he said, I will never forget. I said almost nothing, but I held that space for her and I was with her. And that's what I find time and time again, grievers remember, those people. Why do we find that so difficult to do for one another? I think part of it is we are so, with technology at our hands, literally and figuratively, we're constantly bombarded with information. We are distracted, but it requires taking a breath, not just running in from work, cooking dinner, and then you're about to call that friend who just lost a child or a spouse or just found out they got diagnosed with cancer, not going to call them in the middle of rushing. I'm going to pause. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to center myself. I like to put my hand on my heart for 10 seconds. They say that releases oxytocin that calms us. And then I'm going to call and be there. So I think it requires us to kind of get a little centered. As a friend of mine likes to say, let them catch your calm. That if we're in a calm space, that's half of it, showing up with presence and then listening and really allowing the person to be where they are. And that could change moment to moment. Something I learned, actually, from your resources is that it's often not helpful to ask, how can I help? Why? So it's not that we can't help. It's that so often people will text a friend or call someone and say, hey, I want to help. What can I do? So number one, if someone's just had a loss, they often don't even know how they're going to do the next hour. They don't know much. They don't even know what they need. So I'll say to a griever sometimes, you know, it's great if you can appoint one of your close people in your life to be the person that when people ask, how can I help? They will have a list, do the laundry, walk the dog, take their child who's on the spectrum to a movie so mom can just sit and wail and cry her eyes out, you know, and they'll have things to do. But too often we say to people, call me if you need me. I always ask audiences, raise your hand if you've called someone when you needed them. And maybe one person out of 500. Mm -hmm. And they said, it's better if you just show up and say, I brought groceries. Hey, I'm going to walk your dog. And the person could say, and I'm not saying everybody should show up at the house because that's also hard. You know, sometimes that's overwhelming. But I think it's important that we want to help. And this is also important, Julie. So many people feel that they have to send the the sympathy card out the first week. They have to show up. They have to send the food immediately. So many people do that. What the griever really needs is two weeks later, a month later, six months later. And sometimes people will say to me, I feel I shouldn't send the card. It's too late. And I'll say, no, it's not too late. As a matter of fact, grievers will say, I couldn't even really read them in the beginning. It meant so much that somebody was still thinking of me. How long does a person who has experienced a loss need someone to come and just sit and listen? Is that really a first couple of weeks after the loss thing? I think that's so individual. Some people need somebody in the beginning, the first few days and weeks to really be with them, support them. I work with a lot of people who've lost children and now it's a child's birthday coming up next week and they're at work and they're very aware. So they need a manager, a boss, a colleague who knows how to just come and sit and say, I know next week's going to be tough. How can I help in terms of your workload, is there anything that I can do for you? Many people will say we grieve forever. I lost my mom 29 years ago. I think about her a lot. I lost my dad about seven years ago. I don't think one day we wake up and say I'm over them. I do think though everyone has different needs. And also some of us have really great support systems in our life. And not everyone needs to go to therapy. So, but is there a point at which those feelings, 
Like they, they're, I mean, they're supposed to subside at some point. Absolutely. Okay. So, so if you have a loved one who's experienced a loss and, you know, maybe six months, a year on, they're still crying a lot every time they mention the person or whenever, you know, you're doing this sort of sitting with them and it's sound, and it's still a lot of the same things you were hearing in the first weeks and months. At what point do you become concerned about helping someone you love experience grief in, in a healthy way? I think it's always helpful to encourage that person. And often that griever will even acknowledge, I can't get off the couch or I'm stuck. I can't enjoy anything. So what do you say? You encourage them to join a support group, to seek out somebody who specializes in grief. Sometimes people need trauma therapy because when it's sudden and shocking, a violent death, that the person's not grieving immediately. They're in shock. They can't process it. Everything that they knew life to be is not what they thought it was. Yeah. And it takes time. And a lot of those people will say to me, I'm finally really grieving now. And it's been six months or a year. As time has gone by, they've done things to help themselves feel safe or with a professional, and now they get get to the grief part, the missing, the yearning that they couldn't even experience early on because they were so much in the trauma and shock. Mm. That's all such great advice. Let's talk a little more about um, w- what to do if you're the one going through grief. So if yes. we talk now about how to do right by ourselves. <laughs> by our, I love that. So one thing we can do is we can be honest. So when we have a loss come up, death losses are, we're very aware of those losses, but there's a million other losses that happen throughout the day. Maybe you're at work. I remember a couple of times I was at work, something came up and I thought, oh, if I was home right now, I would just let myself cry or call a friend, but I can't. I have to finish what I'm doing at work. So I, first thing I do is acknowledge that I have grief. I have some pain, emotional pain. And I'll say to myself, I promise later when I get home, I'm not going to desert myself. That's a mistake we make. We push it down. We say it's not really a big deal, but it is a big deal. And so acknowledge the loss. Try to identify what feelings you're having. Are you yearning for the person? Feeling sad? Are you feeling guilty or regret? Are you feeling lonely? insecure and acknowledge those. And then when you are home, when you are in a safe space, journal, call a friend, sit with it. So often we're in our society, we're so quick to do something instead of being with it, that people will tell me I'm not sleeping at night. And I'll say, is it because you're running from the grief all day and then you lie down and you're done with TikTok and Instagram and then you lie there and they're like, yeah, then it all comes up. How am I ever going to move past or move through to a place where I'm not feeling those feelings so intensely if I'm focusing on sitting with them? That's a great, great question. There's a book called Grieving Mindfully. And in it, they say people are so afraid to kind of give permission to the grief to be with the feelings as if the feelings will overtake you. On the contrary, when we notice... When we breathe, like breathing is such a great thing I do with all my clients and teach them to take a deep breath, slow, slower exhale, you're breathing, you're in this moment. Well, our feelings are kind of like the breath. They come in, they leave. People will say, if I start crying, I'm never going to stop crying. And I say, do you know anyone that's never stopped crying? Like we really are afraid. Or if I let the anger out. It'll never stop. So if we learn to be with it and just notice it, we'll also notice it shifting. And over time, the feelings will come up. They may be as intense or a little less intense, but less frequent. And as I said, special days, holidays, something reminds them it comes up. And then they learn hand on their heart or breathe. It's okay. I can get through this if I need to call someone, if I need to write in a journal, volunteering. I'm always saying exercise, nutrition, getting enough sleep, 
all those things help and they all affect our mental health. Lisa Ethan is a grief recovery specialist. She's founder of the Grief Speaks Facebook community. Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. It was really wonderful to be with you. I briefly mentioned this earlier, and I wasn't sure if I'd say any more about it. But when my dad died seven years ago, it was the first big personal loss I'd experienced. The grief knocked me over. Those first few weeks, I was holding back tears at work, doing live radio interviews and just trying not to think about it. Then lying in bed at night, heartbroken, terrified of the deep sadness I was feeling, unsure what to do with it, unsure how to talk about it, desperate for it to be over. I'm not a particularly patient person, so I kept Googling the five stages of grief and trying to figure out which one was I in so I could chart my progress toward the end of it and a return to normal. Well, like all the other grievers we've heard from, mine isn't gone. But it's also not as present as it once was. I've not been able to explain it all that well. And then while working on this podcast, actually, I came across a passage in Brandy Scalache's book, Death's a Summer Coat, and it captures so perfectly what grief is like for me now. I actually gasped as I read it. Scalache says, Grief, like a deep water beast, reveals itself only in pieces. Submerged for a while, now the head appears, now the tail breaking the surface of our lives with a sudden crest of fresh feeling. It's a more menacing image than some might like, but I still fear the power grief has to surge up unexpectedly and stop me in my tracks. Now I'm thinking more deeply about why that scares me, how it's probably related to the general phobia in our culture about grieving, how I've not yet developed the skills of a griever, and how the next time a big loss comes to my door, I hope to be better at letting grief in. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me and Cole Cummings with help from Elizabeth Miller and James Hoops. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. And if you haven't already, would you take a moment to leave a rating or give us a review on the podcast app where you are listening to Top of Mind? That will help other people find us and feel the power of thinking deeply. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.